Welcome to the second season of The Bulb. If you've joined us on The Bulb before, welcome back. If you're a new listener, we're pleased to have you. Season 1 listeners will remember the diversity of our first audio outings. We journeyed back in time to learn more about the history of Queensland's service landscape and explored the personal history of one of our state's notable figures in responding to gender violence. We were inspired by contemporary leadership in the sector and heard the warm conversation of our First Nations colleagues who shared their practice wisdom. 2020 will be remembered by our world as the year of COVID and how we communicate with men who use violence when face-to-face engagement is not possible was a topic we could not ignore. If you missed season one, don't worry, you can still access these fascinating podcasts. For those who have yet to subscribe, we suggest you do so by tapping that subscribe button. Then you'll get notified of each new release of the Bulb podcast as season two and beyond unfold. In this second season, you can expect more variety. And don't be surprised if you hear new accents as an international research colleague or two join us. Oh, and be prepared for some familiar voices too, as we hear from our friends in practice and academia. Hello, Season 2. The name Megan Greeson will be well known to many listeners. Her name was certainly well known to our researchers at the Centre, because in recent years in our work exploring sexual assault response teams, Megan's published papers were very valuable. This episode of The Bulb has an international flavour. Here we learn more about Dr Megan Greeson, an Associate Professor of Community Psychology at DePaul University in Chicago, Illinois. Hello Megan and welcome to The Bulb. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, it's good to be here. It's, it's so lovely to have you with us all the way from Chicago. And we appreciate that you've already made a little movie for us, for which we're really grateful. Megan, you've been a researcher across a number of areas. I was looking at your publications this morning. But the central theme revolves from my kind of cursory glance at the, at the, the issue of sexual violence. And I think listeners would really love to hear about your journey as an academic and in particular how you came to work in this field of gendered violence. Yeah, um, I think that's a great question. So when I was in college, I um, got really interested in gender-based violence. At the time, I was actually focused more on domestic violence um, and was just thinking about how, you know, violence is this awful injustice. And then we often layer on this additional injustice of not believing people or blaming them for what's happened to them. And so I thought that was really important and wanted to be a part of addressing that. Um, At the time, I really thought I was going to be um, like a counselor or a social worker, Um, but I got involved in some research that I thought was having an important um, effect on helping agencies do a better job of responding to and understanding violence. Um, And so I kind of got the research bug from there. Um, But before I ever went into research, I did do volunteer advocacy, both for women with abusive partners and then later for um, sexual assault victims. So I had some of that on the ground experience, too. That's really interesting, Megan. 
And so along on this journey, you've, you've learned lots. And I wonder if you could share with us your top five lessons, because you've really become a specialist now in, in community responses to sexual violence. And if you could say, well, if, you know, if there were five things that I would really love to convey to people about what we, what we know, what would they be? Yeah, I think one of the first ones is always starting with a victim-centered or survivor-centered approach to the issue that when we really focus on thinking through what does the survivor want in the situation and how can we help empower that survivor to get what they need from us, I think is really important. So respecting their choices um, and then responding to them in a way that's sensitive or you know we call it trauma-informed um, in a way that's really respecting the harm that's been caused toward them and is gonna help um, heal some of that harm. So I think that's one of the ultimate big lessons is that everybody needs to be taking that approach, not just the sexual assault specialist, not just the counselors, but really every step of the process needs to be thinking through this person has been traumatized and how can we as responders help heal some of that, helps to give back their power by giving them choice and not add to it by making things harder for them. So I think that's number one is that victim-centered um, focus. A second one that I think is so critical with these interagency response teams is just really understanding the roles of the different groups and finding ways to come to an agreement about whose job is what and how do those overlap and how are they different, right? When people are able to understand, okay, this is my job, this is your job, I can help you out, you can help me out, but how are we gonna make sure that we don't come into conflict with one another? Think that helps everything go smoothly right um so like getting the sexual assault specialist to understand what's their role when interacting with police and for police what's their role when interacting with advocates same thing with the medical forensic groups right helping them really establish those roles as well as their limitations i found that oftentimes before groups start working together that there can be some kind of frustrations often in communities that they might feel a little bit frustrated with like I don't understand why they do that why would they possibly do that but they take some time to really unpack okay for police why do you do what you do for sexual assault specialists why do you do what you do same thing with medical forensic nurses why do you do what you do when they take the time to really unpack that they start to understand more clearly where each group is coming from and then also how they can more effectively help each other so I think that's another really important take home is find a way to get everybody together, find a way to get everybody to really understand the other groups and then agree on what are the boundaries between our roles so that we don't get into trouble and conflict later, particularly in front of a victim. So I think that's, so if the first one was victim centered, the second one was roles. Um, a third one is really this um, focus on improvement, right? And so, Interagency response teams exist to think about how can we as an entire group improve our response to sexual assault in our own community, right? We're not waiting for funders to tell us what to do. We're not waiting um, for, get to for it to get better magically on our own, but that we're systematically going to get together and think through how can we do better. Um, and what that looks like really varies for community to community, but finding some way to get together as a group and talk about these are our concerns with what we're doing so far, as well as these are the things we're already doing really well together and finding a way to really create some collaborative strategies for addressing that. 
So that can look different from team to team. That could be things like coming up with new protocols, new policies, it could be creating new resources, could be training people differently. Um, but overall, having this focus on how can we as a group improve, but without the finger pointing and the blaming of any one discipline, really trying to focus on, okay, I think we can all do better, rather than here's what folks are doing wrong. Um, so that's the third one is that reflection and improvement. Um, from there, I'd also emphasize the importance of resources and leadership. Um, having some, if, if you really need to have folks that have the time to get together, right? So that the, the people that they work for are willing to send their medical forensic people, their sexual assault specialists, their police to meetings where they can talk to, together or to trainings where they can get together and talk. But this does take some dedicated time. And so agencies and communities need to be able to devote some resources to that. Um, in addition, I've tended to find that um, having some kind of leader, and that often takes money, <laughs> um, can really help. And by leader, I don't, I don't mean someone that's going to make all the decisions, but just somebody that's going to keep the trains moving <laughs> so that they call them meetings and they, um, you know, take minutes, they set agendas, but that they just keep making sure that the group keeps getting together, the group keeps talking about ways to improve, the group keeps learning from one another, and then the group executes those plans. And so I found that, you know, everyone is so busy. Police are busy, nurses are busy, sexual, sexual assault specialists are busy, doctors are busy, they're all so busy. And so it's really easy to, for everyone to focus on their day-to-day -day job and for the interagency piece to get lost in the shuffle. So having some time and energy in the form of like a coordinator, a leader that can help remind people, we got to do this part too, I think is really important as well. Um, so getting some resources to help people do the work, I think is really important. And then um, a fifth one I would also like to out is just the importance of relationships. I think that's so obvious <laughs> to some extent when we're talking about interagency response teams. Um, but at the end of the day, we're asking folks to work together differently. And sometimes we're asking people to work together differently with groups that they felt frustrated by, that they felt they've had tensions with, right? And so um, working as a team to really cultivate a positive sense of feeling toward one another working toward helping other people feel understood by you, um, working toward helping other people see that you are being flexible and not just asking them to change, I think are all important pieces. But at the same time, I think that's also one of the biggest benefits of these teams is that when it does go well, they talk about, oh, wow, like now I really know, you know, I know George at the police station is my go-to guy when I've got a question, or I know Sally at the sexual assault um, agency is who I need to contact. You've got these amazing channels that can develop and a lot of trust where a lot of the work can get done if you're able to bridge those deep, trusting, personal relationships. So I'd say those are my top five um, recommendations or takeaways for folks. And it's interesting because I guess in smaller communities, um, my guess would be that those relationships then can be repurposed to address other community issues of concern because in a smaller community, Georgia, the police officer will not just be your sexual assault specialist, they'll also maybe wear other hats that others will be tapping into as well. 
Yeah, I've definitely seen that in smaller communities in the U.S. too of like, you know, maybe that's also your go-to guy for domestic violence, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So there's yeah. some of the similar players and it's easier to stay in touch when there's, you know, I think that, that smaller number of responders too. And I think sometimes we underestimate the importance of having somebody to, I like to use the expression, oil the machine. You know, so someone, as you say, needs to kind of keep be the resource that keeps the people meeting and keeps the whole um, network ticking along. So, yeah, those those five messages really resonated with with me in particular. And I guess you know you've talked, and it was really interesting to hear about those those five lessons. But part of the bulbs agenda too is is to flag what we don't know. And Megan, I wonder if you could touch on what are the things that we have yet to have revealed in this area. Yeah, um, I think that's an interesting question. Um, I think one of the concerns I have about the research is is we have yet to give people really effective solutions for how exactly to get buy-in to working together, right? If you're really going to do an interagency response team, it fundamentally requires that each of the groups involved are willing to say, I want to work together with the other groups. And I, um, and that doesn't mean saying handing over all the power of your own work to another agency, right? It's not saying that I, as a police officer, am saying, okay, the advocates get to tell me what to do, and I just have to do it. It's not that at all. It's not about other people trying to tell you how to do your job. But it is allowing for some flexibility of people that don't do the work you do, giving you some input on how you could work together with them better but then also giving that back to you so you can give them some input too. And I think that in some communities, it's hard to get past that first level of folks being interested in the perspectives of other disciplines. So I think um, how exactly to do that is, is my big question. I do think repeated outreach can be helpful, um, but I don't think it's a magic solution. And I think maybe some training can be helpful people get more trained on the benefits of interagency response teams or on the benefits of working together, I think that can be helpful. Um, But sometimes that's a real hard divide um, or hard, sometimes that's a hard thing to overcome, I guess is a better way to say it. So um, I think we, we lack a perfect solution for that piece. Thanks, Megan. And I think if you, um, you know, could crack that code, again, that could be a code that could be applied across a range of, of health and public concerns, could it not? This effect of working together is a theme that, that comes across in response to just about every health and social problem we encounter. So good luck with that one, I say. <laughs> <laughs> so you have talked about what we know, what what is yet to be revealed. What have been the surprises, and there might have been good surprises and bad surprises that you've encountered on your research journey? I think that would be a really interesting area for us to explore. Yeah, um, I think I've got a couple. I think um, one was I was conducting some research, and at the end of the interview, I said, what else do you want me to know about these teams? Um, It wasn't a question... I didn't have a specific thing I was fishing for. It was just like, what else do you want me to know? And the thing that kept coming up over and over again was it's going to take some time to do this. 
Um, so the people I was talking to were the, the people that had really led what um, the interagency response um, efforts in their community. They were often the ones saying, we got to get together. We got to work as a team. They were the ones reaching out to other disciplines, getting the meetings going. Um, and they just really talked about, don't expect this to happen overnight. Um, don't even expect this to happen within a quarter. Like it's, it's going to take a year. It might take multiple years, right? And don't get so eager to jump to um, making things better that you hurdle past developing those relationships. They really talked about you got to build some positive relationships first because if you go straight to accountability, people can walk really easily, right? It can feel threatening. It can feel out to get you. So don't rush it. And also don't give up when it's taking time, when you're having to follow up with people to ask for a meeting more than once and it feels like nobody cares. It, it's not necessarily the case. Um, just you need to give it some more time. So it's a marathon rather than a sprint in most cases in your experience? Yeah, that's that's what the communities I interviewed suggested. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, Megan, so thank you for your time this morning. And, you know, we we sometimes struggle, I think, with uh, when we hear about the, the extent of the problem and, you know, how much work there is to be done. But what are the developments or changes that you're seeing that, that give you hope when it comes to how we prevent and respond to gendered violence? Yeah, I love um, that question. I think that's really important too. Um, I think... I have seen here in the U.S., um, I do feel like people are more understanding when we approach them about why it might make sense to work on improving the response to sexual assault as a community. So that might be part of the Me Too movement here, might be a host of other factors. But over time, I feel like um, folks are more understanding of why the social services, why the criminal justice, why the medical should bother all getting together, right? Why it's worthwhile to figure out how can we do this better as a team? And along with that, I've seen each of the disciplines, you know, not every single community by any means, but I've seen lots of examples of people really being open to thinking through it from a different perspective. You know, I, I remember going to a training in Florida um, and the conference was um, some police and they were um, presenting, and they were presenting about how they learned about a new trauma-informed interviewing technique. And they talked about how at the beginning, they did not like this technique. They did not think it was great, but then they tried it and their supervisors made them do it. And then they were surprised at how positive the outcomes were. And that case is that initially they had thought, this seems suspicious. I don't really think this case is right. They employed the new trauma-informed techniques that led them to better evidence. They investigated, and those cases ended up being prosecuted. So cases that they might have been inclined to throw out, they became open to this new technique that they learned about from their interdisciplinary group, and they did it, and it worked better. So I think I've been really um, encouraged by the different ways that people are open to learning from others' disciplines and that they are willing to come to the table and have the hard conversations about, can I try approaching my work a little bit differently, even if it's new or not my usual way of thinking? Um, do the police example, but I've also seen that with advocates too. I've watched advocates do 
take ride-alongs where they um, actually literally ride in the police car with police. I've seen them go to police training them about the work of police and learning from the police and coming to understand more of that perspective. So again, I think that just openness to learning from one another, I think it's been very encouraging. Megan, it's great to end on an inspirational note, and that was that was a, a really um, powerful example, of, and and it kind of reiterated your point, I think, with the, how important it is to maintain our victim-centered thinking and doing at the core of everything we do. So, on that note, we'll say thank you for joining us on the Bulb. It's been a pleasure. We thank you, Megan, and we wish you a good evening in Chicago. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We hope you found this edition of The Bulb Enlightening. If you'd like to know more about our work, please visit noviolence.org.au. For victims and survivors of gendered violence who may have found the content of this podcast disturbing, free, confidential 24-hour counselling is available nationally on 1-800-737-732 through 1-800-RESPECT. If you would like to know more about responding to domestic and family violence, CQ University offers a range of postgraduate and other study options. Visit cqu.edu.au and search courses for domestic violence to learn more.